0: Welcome back to the Santa Cruz Baptist Podcast. My name is Drew Cunningham, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm here with... Tyler Hurst, one of the other pastors. Today, we are going to be walking through Tyler's sermon in Daniel chapter 8. We are eight chapters deep in the book of Daniel. And um, so I'm excited to talk through this. This is, you know, the first six chapters of Daniel are narrative... And then starting in chapter 7, we start getting these crazy, crazy visions. Uh, we get into apocalyptic literature, um, which can be really scary to dive into. But the more we've, we've studied these texts, the more encouraging it's been. And so, Tyler, what, are, what would you say is the main point of Daniel chapter
1: 8? What do you hope that people walked away with this week? Yeah, the the primary focus that I was trying to lean into was, um, and this is actually going to be true in part or in whole for uh, Daniel 8, as well as 9, 10, 11, and 12, is that uh, our world is a world of chaos, and yet God is giving us hope in the midst of it. And sort of the primary way I tried to communicate this was by tying Daniel 8 to John sixteen thirty three, where Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. So there's going to be hard things to walk through. There's going to be chaos. There's going to be all sorts of things. Um, But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And so there's Mm. this uh, difficulty, confusion, chaos, but in the midst, God has won. God is victorious.
0: Yeah, and I I think that's something we talked about in in Daniel 7 as Mm -hmm. well, that one of the main points of apocalyptic literature is in the midst of persecution, in the midst of tribulation or trials, uh, that God is still on the throne Mm -hmm. and that He is in control of all things. We see that kind of thing present in Revelation 4 and 5, that in in the midst of severe persecution for Christians, uh, Revelation 4 and 5, peel back the curtain of heaven and show Christ on the throne with people calmly worshiping around Him. Um, And so, I think that's something that that is very much present in in these chapters. It's saying, Daniel, there's going to be some hard things, um, but take heart. I've overcome mm-hmm. the world. I, I've got this, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm not going anywhere. And I know what's going on, and I, I'm here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in light of that, um, Daniel eight can be a, a very confusing chapter. Uh, you read along and you see, you know, this male goat, you see this ram, you see all these horns. Um, there can be a lot of confusion in that. Um, why is this in scripture? Uh, why, why is Daniel 8 as a whole in scripture and why does it even matter to someone in Santa Cruz in 2021?
1: Yeah, it's it's a good question. And I think when you and I decided to teach through the book of Daniel for our church, um, one of the things that we noticed right away as we started looking at commentaries and trying to figure out how to divide it up was uh, this might be the only book in which the chapter where a disembodied hand writes on the wall <laughs> is not the weirdest thing that takes place totally. in the book. Uh, and it can seem uh, it can seem disconnected from our world.
0: Uh, yeah, I know a lot of people, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. even in, in talking to people, uh, who have preached through this this book, mm-hmm. um, I know lots of pastors, lots of churches who just
1: literally stop at chapter six. Mm-hmm. They don't preach the rest of the book. Well, and I think two of the commentaries I got, half or three-fourths of the commentary goes up to chapter six, and then they just like... Crank up the speed and fast forward through uh, seven through twelve. They they might have a bit longer section on seven because of the famous Son of Man passage, which is going to play out as Jesus takes on the name of Son of Man in mm-hmm. the Gospel of Mark primarily. Um, but it can it can seem disconnected from us. I I thought as I read this um, and as I started looking at the three different sermons I was going to preach in Daniel 8, 10, and 11. Um, To keep in the back of my mind uh, the famous liberal theologian Rudolf Boltmann, who once quipped in German, so this is a bit of a paraphrase, but In a world with electric light, can we really believe in the miracles of the Gospels? And his point was, don't we have to demythologize this stuff? Don't we have to remove the kind of like crazy spiritual stuff from it in order to get to the real essence? And one of the problems that the German liberals uh, back in the 1930s and 40s ran into. And one of the problems that a lot of progressive churches run into is when you pull out the parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable, either morally and ethically, or in terms of their content and genre, uh, you actually, you lose really important fundamental truths of what God's trying to communicate to us. And so what I would say uh, a text like this means for somebody in Santa Cruz is we see this sort of chaos all around us. I mean, we see it in our broader world uh, with something like COVID-19 or even like political turmoil and stuff like that. We have all these things happening around us and so many people struggle with depression, so many people struggle with mental illness, uh, and there are people who didn't struggle with it previously just because the world seems chaotic uh, and it seems out of control.
0: So it would be really easy to look out over Santa Cruz and Mm -hmm. think, wow, like... God has not made all things
1: new, and
0: God is not in control. There's still so much brokenness around us and just turmoil.
1: Yes, and God being in control doesn't mean all things will be smiley, happy, and sunny. Right. Uh, In fact, throughout the scriptures, a major trope and theme that comes up again and again is God's use of hardship in order to refine his people, in order to sanctify his people, in order to test us, Uh, and... That comes out in these latter chapters of Daniel. In fact, preparing to teach Daniel chapter 10, the concept of um, different uh, ungodly pagan regimes arising and having control for, quote-unquote, the appointed time. Mm -hmm. So God God has said, like, I'm going to let these people come to power, and they come to power by his sovereignty and providence, and he sustains them in power until it's no longer time and until they ought to be judged, and then the tables turn, and Mm -hmm. this keeps on happening. But what you see throughout the book of Daniel and throughout the flow of Scripture and climaxing in the book of Revelation is in spite of all of this chaos, God reigns. Mm -hmm. And so when I think of that, I think, well, what would this mean for somebody in Santa Cruz? Well, we have all sorts of different chaotic things going in our lives, Um, and what, what we really need to do... Uh, and you and I talk about this a lot when we talk about prayer, actually, is one of the reasons why it's so important when you pray to anchor your prayers in Scripture is because when you're doing that, you're anchoring your prayers in who God is. Mm-hmm. And so you anchor your prayer in theology first. What is true? Who is God? Who am I? And then from there, your prayers have a much more firm foundation on which to stand on and petitions on which to be made. Uh, so often, I think so many of us just kind of like pray from like checklists, like, oh, I got to pray for this person for this and that person for that. And if you actually take a step back, I mean, I have one on my iPad that I could look at of a bunch of different people in church who have requested prayer for different things. And when I actually just look at it without meditating on who God is and meditating on the fact that he is one, that Christ has risen, and that the, like those who accept the gospel have the Holy Spirit living inside them if I forget those truths and I just look at that prayer list, it's extremely overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Um, But when we remember that all of this chaos fits within God's plan, all evil will be judged and all righteousness uh, will come out in the end and that Christ reigns and he brings his saints along with him. Well, we find that in the midst of the chaos, we can trust and we can have faith and we can endure knowing that this life isn't all we get.
0: Yeah. So in in many ways, texts like Daniel 8 give us a new lens through which to view the world around us. Yeah. Um, At at the very first sermon in Daniel, uh, I read from 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 that says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is Mm -hmm. profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. And mm-hmm. so, again, just to apply those two verses uh, to Daniel 8, uh, I think based on what, what you said, uh, this text actually corrects our mm-hmm. wrong thinking. Uh, whenever we look at the world and we assume that God is not in control, mm-hmm. we look and we, we assume that, um, you know, brokenness has won in this world, uh, a text like Daniel 8 corrects our thinking and helps mm-hmm. us to understand that the existence of these things does not mean God is not in control. Mm-hmm. Um, he just is working his plan mm-hmm. in a way different than we naturally understand.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many ways that that can expand. I mean, I think many people, they experience fallenness and brokenness and suffering in this world in such a way in which they would just like God to not do that. And if like if things were operating by God's plan, they would like it to be perfect and comfortable. mm mm-hmm. um, but one of the things that we, we have to remember is, one, God never promises us that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and two, that one of the reasons why the world sustains the way it is and why brokenness and suffering persists is actually that's God's patience because he wants more people to come to know him. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so when we get in this kind of place of like, well, why isn't, aren't things just comfortable and easy for me? It's like, well, in order to be comfortable and easy for you, he would have to purge the world from sin, which means purging the world of those who do not yet know him. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, that brings an end to the great commission. And so that's one of the things we want to think about is that we are to go out into the world, whether, you know, the broader world in terms of missions, but also not just go out into the broader world, but also go out into like. Santa Cruz, go out into the grocery store, go out into your local coffee shop, go out into, you know, the school at which your kids attend, um, and make disciples there.
0: That's good. So you talking about the great commission just Mm -hmm. kind of spurs on this question. Um, where's the gospel in Daniel H. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's, uh, that, um, for a lot of people, isn't going to be uh, particularly easy to see, and that's sort of because we don't have good lenses often to read this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to remember that that the gospel is both a small story and a big story, right? I mean, so there's one way to communicate the gospel like you did um, with uh, mentioning John 3.16 in your last sermon, Um one sentence, gospel, boom, right there. But then there's also fitting it into the broader story of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways in which we could describe the gospel in terms of the broader story is the coming of the kingdom of God. So right in, as we, uh, proceeding being in Daniel, we were in the gospel of Mark. And one of the first times Jesus shows up in the gospel of Mark in Mark 1, uh, 14 and 15, he it says that Jesus came preaching the gospel and he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, what ultimately is this vision about, and what is what is Daniel seeing? Well, he's seeing the rise and fall of these earthly kingdoms, yet God stays the same. And in the very, very end, and what we see climaxing throughout all of Daniel's visions is the solidity of the kingdom of God. And that traces not only in Daniel 8, but back in Daniel chapter 2 with the little tiny rock that falls out of the mountain mm-hmm. or falls falls crushes the foot of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar which breaks it down everything then grows into a big mountain um, every time Daniel is is a, encountering one of these strange visions what the vision is around is the coming of the kingdom of God which traces us from uh, the book of Genesis in which one of the ways by the way we could define the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, under God's rule. Mm-hmm. And so if you have those three things, Genesis 1 and 2, God's people, Adam and Eve, God's place, the Garden of Eden, we could think of as a temple, but even within the broader place that God designed, which is all of creation, and then un- living under God's rule. They're living in covenant community with God. And uh, in Genesis 3, the challenge to God's kingdom comes in and We could classify the rest of the Bible as God seeking to show us the way back to his kingdom and culminating in Jesus taking his throne, sitting down, and us entering into final rest, final peace, final satisfaction, and flourishing in God's kingdom.
0: Yeah. So I've been thinking like the very last sentence in Mm -hmm. Daniel 8. Mm -hmm. Um, This holy one says to him, Mm -hmm. uh, for 2300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. That's good news. Mm-hmm. Uh, amidst yeah. all of these crazy things happening, and you know the, this goat and ram and the horns and all of those things, um, we see a, a portrait of brokenness mm-hmm. and of chaos and of tribulation in those things. But the last sentence tells us that the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Mm-hmm. So that there is a promise there. Uh, that things will be right again, yeah. And I think that's something that's good news. Uh, we know that 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 only happens through Christ and, and His sacrifice on mm-hmm. the cross. Um, so w- we can read um, in Daniel eight, you know, through the lens of of Christ and His atonement. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so, well, and I think there's I I left this out of my sermon, but I think there's this really fascinating thing in that thirteen through fourteen. Where one of the things that you see happen is in the midst of all this chaos, uh, and this is really instructive for us. Um, in terms of the answer to your question about how does this matter for people in Santa Cruz. In the midst of all this chaos, you have these two angelic beings talking, and Daniel gets over here, part of their conversation. Well, what are they concerned about? They're concerned about the worship of God. Mm -hmm. They are not at all concerned about, you know, Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, who is represented here in the text. They're not at all concerned about, you know, whether that horn is Caesar or that horn is Babylon or whatever it is. They are concerned about, hey, so... God is going to let that guy stop his worship. When does that restart? When do the sacrifices get made again? When, when is our God praised again mm-hmm. as he desires and as he is supposed to be?
0: That's good. So I want to move forward a little bit to the end of your sermon, uh, the application at the very end. You talked about how persecution and a Genesis 3 reality, um, it, it's, it's going to continue until the Lord comes back. Mm -hmm. and you made a a comment about uh, living a Jesus-centric life, and one of the more interesting things you said that I know resonated with several people is you said, and this can look very ordinary. Mm -hmm. You pointed out how Jeremiah builds houses, he says, build houses, plant gardens, um, get married, seek the welfare of the city. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you kind of flesh that out for us a little bit? I, I think There's so many people out there, and I'm not knocking on these books. They're good and helpful books. But you read a book like Radical uh, by David Plant or Crazy Love by Francis Chan. Mm -hmm. And and it seems like the only way to be faithful is to do something crazy and Mm -hmm. big and something that, you know, you can tell a story about when you get home. Right. Um, That seems very different than what you said in just living a Jesus-centric life in a normal way. Um, very ordinary. Mm-hmm. So can you kind of flesh out what that looks like? What does ordinary Christianity look like?
1: Yeah, I think, I think wanting to explain that, I would start in a couple of different places. Um, one is uh, just to point out in terms of the books that you mentioned, and a host of others, by the way, it's not just those. This is a, a common thing that takes place in books, and that's partially the animal, or at least what I assume is the animal of Christian publishing, that, you know, Books about ordinariness don't sell as well as books about uh, living radically, um, moving to a foreign country, and uh, putting your life on the line to smuggle Bibles into, I don't know, we'll say, uh, <laughs> ISIS-controlled uh, territory. Like that, it makes sense that those would sell books. Um, one of the things that I think those interesting and helpful. In terms of how you can critique those books without being overly negative, is mm-hmm. to put them in their proper place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Francis Chan, when he wrote Crazy Love, was a pastor in Simi Valley, California. And David Platt, when he wrote Radical, was a pastor in, I wanna say, Birmingham, Alabama. Alabama. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, those two places are obviously pretty different, but they actually also have remarkably similar. Characteristics. Uh, I went to seminary down in Southern California, and actually, you find a lot of seminaries and Bible colleges all cloistered up in Southern California. So, you've got Biola and Talbot, where I went, you've got Master's College, you've got Point Loma, you've got Azusa Pacific, and then you've got um, Cal Baptist, I think, would count in that Southern California group, and you've got a host of also smaller sort of Bible colleges, not just Christian universities. So, I put that in that particular context to say um, the the book Crazy Love and the book Radical came out of sermon series by two pastors living in very wealthy, uh, very urban, very comfortable settings, and surrounded by a lot of young people. Yeah,
0: so they're, they're trying to shake people out of... Apathy, maybe. Yes.
1: so I would say um, complacency is one of the big struggles of the Southern Californian Christianity that I experienced in college and in seminary. And I would assume something very similar based off of what I've heard from my friends uh, from Alabama, from the Birmingham, like Huntsville areas. Uh, And so I point that out just to say that's one of the reasons why I would critique those books is because I... (laughs) Growing up in Santa Cruz, moving back to Santa Cruz, Southern California is almost like we should not be in the same state. Mm -hmm. These should be two different things um, because the cultures are so very different. And so Mm -hmm. books like Radical and, uh, and Crazy Love... Have big cultural influence in Christianity, but they might not fit really well into what we're trying to do in Santa Cruz because they often are trying to push you out of complacency when the average Christian in Santa Cruz is already well aware that they are in hostile territory. Yeah, uh, and so those don't those don't work very well. Um, so that's one of the first things that I would say. The second thing that I would say is the the Bible from the beginning to end, as people are trying to follow Jesus, is I would say, extremely ordinary and extremely earthy. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about it. Like, God makes man from the ground. We're not made from stardust or something, like, cool or anything like that. It's, you know, literally, like, God speaks everything into existence. Then when he wants to make us, rather than creating us from some, like, unique material, he literally just sticks his hands in the dirt and, Mm -hmm. like, forms us. Yeah, Uh, you think about the book of Ruth. mm -hmm, Yeah, It's pretty ordinary, straightforward. Um, she shows up,
0: works hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, she gathers, you know the the things that are left on the ground. Um, she gets married.
1: Mm-hmm. yep
0: <laughs> and she's a portrait of faithfulness.
1: yeah. and where is the last place her name pops up? The genealogy of Jesus? right? Uh, yeah, no, it's fantastic. Um, as well, you see uh, you see just these portraits of ordinariness throughout scripture and how God actually works in that. And so you think of like, well, I'll say it this way. Um, Probably everybody in our church and probably most of the people listening to this podcast, uh, and I know definitely me, um, but if we were to track our salvation, which is when you get saved, when somebody comes to Christ, that is the most, one of the most supernatural things that they can experience, right? Mm -hmm. Like they were spiritually dead, That's, I mean, we could get into all sorts of things about what that means, like even metaphysically, but they were spiritually dead and now they are spiritually alive at that point because something happened. For me, that happened in a very ordinary way. Mm -hmm. Uh, That happened reading books, that happened talking to people at church, that happened watching my mom uh, each morning get up, sit in a particular chair in our living room with an old beat up burgundy NIV Bible and a composition book and just reading that's, I mean, those are the sorts of things that led me to faith and discipled me. And that's nothing about that is particularly amazing. Um, and so with that, you kind of have this idea of like, well, one, I can, I can sort of understand where these kind of pushes to be more radical and to get out of our comfort zone and do those sorts of things come from. And two, uh, as I read scripture, I can understand, um, that faith itself is just, it's very earthy, it's very ordinary, and it comes from things like parents and grandparents, mm-hmm. uh, and it's passed down that way. And so when I when I think about that, I think, what is one of the greatest things that we could do? And this is at what I wrote in terms of the close of my sermon. I said, in light of Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, well, let us live the same way, Let us gather and sing. It's just a very ordinary thing to do. Um, Let us read and discuss the scriptures. I mean, that's basic. I mean, little kids learn how to read and have conversations.
0: And ironically, (laughs) uh, here in Santa Cruz, that's pretty radical
1: to do that. Yeah. Well, and that's... that's, one of the ways in which I usually start conversations with people who lean a different place from me uh, in terms of politics or religion or something like that is often I'll, in conversations, just point out that I, I'm a radical conservative and that I'm a conservative in a place where it's really radical to be a conservative. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> um, but getting married, raising kids, working, um, and I mean, I think of this one as just in Santa Cruz, very ordinary usually pretty easy but we so often don't do it but just enjoying god mm-hmm. i mean how often i feel so blessed to live in santa cruz and just be able to in 15 minutes you can be either in a forest or at the beach when no matter where you are in santa cruz basically and you can just see the grandeur of god's creation mm-hmm. and enjoy him uh and all of this stuff is pretty ordinary like i can take my kids out to um you know, Roaring Camp, where Thomas the Tank Engine shows up a couple of times a year, point up at one of the largest trees in the world and go, that tree isn't as old as God, it's not as big as God, and it'll be dead long before God, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, and but by God's design, that tree started as something almost microscopic. Right. And I can teach them about God uh, in a very radical way, but from just very ordinary roots of things around them. Yeah, that's awesome. So in closing, what are some
0: resources you might recommend around the topics or the themes of Daniel 8?
1: Yeah, um, we we sort of uh, critiqued uh, Crazy Love and Radical, but um, to put out a book that I think preceded them, uh, but it did so in probably a more well-rounded way. I would say something like, Uh, either the cost of discipleship or true spirituality. So the cost of discipleship written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the 1940s. um, Bonhoeffer has a pretty amazing story. And at at the same time, a very ordinary story. He has an amazing story in that he was involved in an assassination plot to kill Hitler, uh, and you know he gave his life for the Christian cause in Nazi Germany as the church was uh, going off the rails and following certain uh, Nazi propaganda that they shouldn't have been. And yet, at the same time, Dietrich Bonhoeffer pastored a very small church in a very faithful way. Mm-hmm. He wrote basic books about how to follow Jesus. He preached gospel sermons on how to live the Christian life, and he got engaged. He sadly was executed before he got married, but, you know, he was just living an ordinary life just at extreme times, we might say, which I think is similar to Daniel.
0: Can you imagine how encouraging a chapter like Daniel 8 would be during World War Two? while oh, that yeah. was going on?
1: Oh, Yeah, it would be fascinating to see if uh, he actually preached any sermons on it and if they're translated into English. Mm -hmm. Um, And as well, I said True Spirituality by Francis Schaeffer. It's one of my favorite books. Um, It embodies for me both in the text uh, sort of this like ordinary Jesus following that is really radical and in a story connected with it. Um, So just in terms of a a personal story, I came to faith, like I, I mentioned, my mom earlier. Uh, I came to faith through my family, primarily through my mom. My mom was led to faith by her older brother, my uncle Rock, uh, and my uncle Rock came to faith at the Air Force Academy, um, and he was led to uh, led to the Christian faith by um, I'm going to forget the primary guy who is his roommate in the Air Force Academy, uh, but by uh, his roommate and one of his roommate's friends who led a Bible study named Gary DeWeese. And the copy of True Spirituality I actually have is from Gary DeWeese, because Gary DeWeese retired as a professor at Talbot Theological Seminary, and his last semester teaching there was my first semester in seminary. And so I ended up taking his class, and he gave me his copy of True Spirituality. So it's this radical story of how faith passes on through these, but just very ordinary things in terms Mm -hmm. of my uncle's roommate and Dr. the future Dr. DeWeese just would get together and pray for people on campus and lead a Bible study. And that led to my Uncle Rock becoming a Christian, led to my mom becoming a Christian, leading to my older brother and I becoming a Christian. Um, and yeah.
0: Yeah, so yeah. in the midst of crazy times, um, do the normal thing of sitting down and having a Bible study. Mm-hmm. That's my encouragement for you guys today. And uh, with that, we are out of time. So we will see you again next week.